And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts like the Salesman Podcast hosted by Will Barron. Now, if you work in sales, you want to learn how to sell, or you want to peek at some of the latest sales news and insights, you need to listen to the Salesman Podcast The host, Will Barron, helps sales professionals learn how to find buyers and win big business in effective and ethical ways. If you think any of the following topics resonate with you, you're going to love the show. How to find and close your dream job in sales, 12 essential principles of selling, digital body language, how to have better Zoom sales meetings, or how to tell a remarkable sales story. If these are topics that would interest you, go check out the Salesman Podcast wherever you get your podcast or at hubspot.com slash podcast network. Today, my guest is Mia Menz. She is the Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer, as well as CEO at Impact Ventures for Sodexo. She's responsible for leveraging diversity, equity, and inclusion as a key business differentiator worldwide for Sodexo. She oversees uh, the CSR, or corporate social responsibility portion of the business, as well as Stop Hunger for Sodexo North America. She also leads Sodexo Magic, which is a JV joint venture between Sodexo and Magic Johnson Enterprises. Now, Sodexo is not a small company by any means. They operate in 64 countries. They have 420,000 employees. They serve 100 million consumers every single day. Outside of her work at Sodexo, she mentors passionately, both formally and informally. She founded her own nonprofit, Seven Sisters to Sisters. She serves on the boards of Girls Inc., the Emerge Fellows Program Catalyst, and the Greater Houston Partnership. She also sits on the Business Leadership Council at Wellesley College and the Harvard Business School African-American Alumni Board. She's a corporate director for H&R Block and Limeade, and she was recognized in Black Enterprises 2019's Most Powerful Women in Corporate America. So we spoke about her career, some of the lessons that she's learned as she's moved into some of the upper echelons of Sodexo, working as Global Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer. We spoke about the importance, of course, of uh, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, what it actually means. It's a word that's thrown around a lot, but how has it become more important than ever? What does it mean in terms of what a company should do to have a proper DE&I program? How does it impact everything from your revenue to your hires to your culture within the organization? Uh, we spoke about some of the programs that she's worked on within Sodexo as a model for other businesses and other entrepreneurs and other founders, CEOs to model in their own businesses. We spoke about basically the top things that you have to do to create a truly inclusive, representative, and equitable business, but also an inclusive, representative, and equitable society. 
And she has incredible insight. She's an incredible person. I'm happy to have the chance to speak with her because what she's doing at Sodexo should be a model for every business out there. So this is a great piece. If you have a company and you're trying to figure out how to do D, E, and I properly, you have to listen to Mia. She's basically the most well-versed, smartest, insightful person on this topic I've ever spoken to. So let's jump right into it. This is Mia Menz, the Global Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer, as well as CEO at Impact Ventures for Sodexo. I always start with the fact that I'm an immigrant, as many people are in this country, um, this diverse country that is the United States of America. But I moved with my family when I was eight years old. And we fled a coup d'etat in our home country of Ghana. And, and so I would say that that journey from a very stable, happy uh, life, my parents were accomplished professionals when we left um, Ghana. We, we went to the UK expecting things would get better and they didn't. So my parents decided to start over in the United States and came with nothing but our suitcases and their three young daughters. And I would say that that experience, even though I was eight years old, um, was instructive in that it is, it is informed, that journey has informed everything that has happened in my life. It has given me a deep sense of purpose and conviction about how I should be using my life. It has... Um, forced me to be grateful, to be humble. Um, my parents taught us to have incredible work ethic, to know that there was nothing we could take for granted, that we were not to squander opportunities. And so I think getting those lessons at a very young age, plus love, <laughs> love and affirmation, um, being you know Black girls in the United States of America has so much connotation. And I think my parents just reinforced that we could be and do anything. And when you get that message at pivotal moments in your life, it is transformative. And, and it's, it's why I think so much about the youth of this country and the ways in which adults, grownups, can, um, can nourish them, can reinforce them, can enable them, because it is, it is teaching children um, in those very precious and formative moments of their life, that's what makes, creates adults who can change the world. So I am grateful. Um, it was not easy, but I'm grateful for the hardship of the journey because it has made me resilient. It has made me willing to embrace risk. Um, and more than anything, I think I live in this place of ongoing joy and gratitude because I know that it can also, it can be gone in an instant. Yes. So when you, and that's it's an incredible story. I didn't know your backstory going into this, so I'm so I always like to learn as I go. So when you left, when you left Ghana, you went to the UK first, and you ended up in the US. Um, why why did your parents believe that um, even the UK was not the the right the right spot for your family to rest? What was the differentiator in the US that made them feel like this is where they wanted to raise their family and to settle down? And and what was it about the US? Yeah. So the first thing that I'll say, and I think this is common for most immigrants, nobody wants to leave their country. It's massively disruptive. It is frightening. Um, you know, you're a foreigner. You go from the comfort of, of, a, of a life that you've known and the language in which you've known it um, with, you know, comfort and, and consistency. And then in a moment, everything changes. 
And so I, I don't know that it was a choice, but I think for them it was a necessity because they wanted a better life for their children. And, and, and we came to this country in the early 80s, so it's been several decades. But I think this idea, the universal idea of, a, of, of the American dream is, is held dearly by most people in the world, particularly those who live in developing countries. And so it is synonymous with hope and opportunity and education. And I think my parents bought into that dream um, and try to actualize that for us. But I would say that my parents sacrificed so that we could have better. I don't think it's ever been easy for my parents um, because they were not educated here. The difference between my sisters and my parents is we were educated here and my parents ensured that we got the best possible education, which has given us every advantage in the world. Um, so I will say, I don't know that it was, it was a choice that they made freely or happily. I think it was circumstances changed and it was a matter of survival. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, CrowdHealth. Now, as we all know, open enrollment is ending soon. It's time to think about the best healthcare option for you and your family. And I know a lot of people are still trying to figure out what to do. Now, when it comes to healthcare, it's important that you're getting your money's worth. CrowdHealth helps you with covering medical expenses. It's a more flexible and affordable healthcare option without the hassle of insurance. So while you're shopping around, don't forget to head to joincrowdhealth.com slash 99. Find out how CrowdHealth can save you 40 to 60% in healthcare costs every single year. And just to give you an idea of what CrowdHealth is, CrowdHealth isn't health insurance. It's a modern way to pay for medical expenses. CrowdHealth is a community of people who are tired of paying into a broken system. Being in the CrowdHealth community can save you hundreds of dollars in monthly expenses and put thousands of dollars back in your pocket. Now, you're probably asking, why would I choose CrowdHealth over traditional insurance? Three main reasons. Flexible, simple, membership-based. Membership is a monthly subscription. Start or stop whenever you want. There's simple and transparent pricing that fits exactly what you need. To use it, all you have to do is scan bills and throw them away. CrowdHealth takes care of the rest. Now, CrowdHealth is able to offer incredible pricing because of its community of health conscious members. And they put together a special offer just for Success Story podcast listeners. So get your first six months at just $99 per month. That's a savings of almost 50% off their standard pricing and a lot less than one of those crappy high deductible plans. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com slash 99 and enter code success story at sign up. That's joincrowdhealth.com slash 99 and promo code is success story. Enter that when you sign up. Remember, CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a community powered alternative. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, as you were growing up in the U.S., um, you mentioned that there were certain things in your childhood that imprinted on you that that has sort of shaped and guided your career. Um, walk me through your early uh, your early career. Um, did you go to you know your first job with with the end result in mind that you wanted to work in diversity and inclusion? And I also want to define what that is and 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 what that what you actually do today, but. So what was, you know, you, you have all these, you have all these, um, you have all these things that you learned from your parents, but how does that guide and shape your career path as you grow? Yeah. Um, so I think the first was I learned to be ambitious and to do the things that people thought I could not do. 
And um, and I, that was probably reinforced when I went to Wellesley College, which it's an all-women's um, school, college. And you're in an environment where you're told as a woman, you can be anything, you can be great. And so everything started to feel accessible when I was at Wellesley that why not me? I just, I mean that, that, and I, I use this, this language so carefully, but that sense of entitlement in the best possible way, which I think women and those that feel disenfranchised in some way need to hear consistently, why not you? And I got those messages very early. And so it just allowed me to raise my hand for things that um, maybe were less traditional. Um, so I don't know that I went, left college knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but I did, I was an economics major and I did understand very early on, I understood the importance of the power of business. Okay. I did understand that. And, and so I always, I knew that I wanted to do something in business, but I would say my understanding of business actually was, was probably quite limited when I was leaving college. Um, but I ended up in a great organization um, that was bringing in people that like me, so college students and putting them, them through, through a rotational program. It's, it was with Citibank, Diners Club Citibank. Um, I didn't love my first job, but boy, did I learn a lot. Um, there was nothing, because I think all of us leave school and we just have this this like this image of what work is going to be like. And it's always much bigger than the reality. Like the reality was I had to start somewhere and I had to learn. And so nothing that I was doing was particularly glamorous. I was running credit card campaigns <laughs> and looking at the 0.02 difference in response rates if you put something on the back of the envelope versus the front of the envelope. But now I'm dating myself because we were still sending direct mail um, in the in the in the in the nineties, um, early two thousands when I was, when I was, when I started working. And, um, and so I, uh, I think it just, it just reinforced for me that there are no shortcuts. Mm -hmm. Like those were the early lessons, uh, that everybody has to start somewhere. And sometimes you just have to do the things that are not necessarily interesting or pleasant, but they're part of the journey. Mm -hmm. I also got in my first job, the importance of sponsorship because I had an incredible sponsor, who just helped me navigate, you know, for four years, just helped me navigate people, the role, the learning, and ultimately my decision to go to business school, um, which was something that I knew I would probably do at some point. But the idea that I could go to Harvard Business School, I mean, that was, that also became accessible through great sponsorship. Um, again, this idea of things felt why not me? Why, why, why should I at least apply? Um, and so again, it's just, it's having those people, those moments in your life who can enable great things just because they believe in you because they believe in you. I had that. Do you think that, that, that understanding that perhaps like finding those people that can help move your career forward, um, is like, it's a huge life hack. Where did you learn? Where did you learn that? Was that something that you picked up um, when you were going through college, or was that something that you just you were looking around? You you understood that the power of sponsorship, and I ask that because I don't think everybody just intuitively looks for sponsors and mentors unless they have somebody that's gone out of their way and helped them, and they see the power of that person, and then they they understand that that is really quite literally how everybody gets to where they are. And I don't think that's a bad thing to say. I think that everybody has mentors who has help, who has sponsorship. Um, 
I, I truly don't believe that anybody in the world is, is truly self-made. I think that even the most incredible people have had incredible amounts of help along the way. So, but you, you found that early on and it's obviously something that, uh, you know, you've, you've done effectively and used effectively, but where did that, where did that understanding come from? That, it, I love that question because I only understood that much later in my career. What I always appreciated was the importance of power, the importance of authentic relationships. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely always liked people. Um, and I've always invested in building really good relationships where that are um, mutually beneficial. And, um, and so, and so that, that desire to reach out, to connect, um, that creates what I found, what I found is people, people then all of a sudden sort of assume this vested interest in you just because they care. And so what I will say is every relationship is about very organic and has started from a place of just wanting to be a good friend and partner to people and receiving that in kind and tenfold. And so I think now I appreciate the importance of um, of sponsorship, but I've never asked anybody to be my sponsor. I rarely ask people to be a, a mentor. It's just happened. And I think that is the right mindset. Cause I think if you go into any relationship expecting something, you're not going to get a whole lot, but I think it's, how can you bring, um, something of value to every person in your life? And sometimes it's just about being honest, being that truth teller, asking for help, I mean, it's it maybe it sounds so basic, but it's 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 remarkable to me how few people are willing to just ask for help, are willing to say, I don't know, are unable to be vulnerable. And when you can be those things, it creates space for people to just organically be those gap fillers for you. And that's what's happened for me in my career. So, so you do understand that, you know, not everybody uh, needs to know everything and, and, and you can be, you can be a little bit, um, you can put yourself out there, ask for help, but also know your own value because you can bring value to those relationships as well. And I think that having that self-confidence, it's almost funny. It's like, it's, it's like the self-confidence and, and the willingness to, to humble yourself and ask for help and things that you don't know. And that's something that I think is a, like a major career hack, life hack, um, but absolutely. So let's let's keep going through your career. So yeah. you did a lot of so, unsexy jobs, a lot of unsexy jobs. <laughs> um, so over 25 years, I've worked for four companies um, uh, in airline payment banking. And as I started to get into my 30s, this idea of being mission driven in my work mm -hmm. just became so critical for me. And so more than finding that right job, I just really wanted great companies that thought about their work in broader societal terms. And that's probably how I made the company decisions. Because I think if you, if you, if you join a great company and you inherently believe in the mission, the job can be anything. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what I, that's, that has been my experience. Um, I've been at Sedexo for almost 10 years. This is my fifth job. And all of them have been drastically different, have pulled on a different set of muscles or skills. Um, a lot of them relied on somebody's perception of my potential versus achievement because I was always going into jobs where I knew very little. Um, but I will always say that I probably had the prerequisite skills, which were um, curiosity, agility, 
um, vulnerability, which has allowed me to ask for help when I didn't know, um, high EQ, mm-hmm. you know, being empathetic and, and the way that I think about the business and people, I think those have been just fundamental foundational characteristics that have made every, every job I've, I've had possible. Um, because everybody has to come to the table with a certain minimum level of business prowess, but like that's stable stakes now. Mm-hmm. It's how do you apply your knowledge? And I think that maybe that's been a differentiator for me. Um, and I guess it's also been my willingness to say yes. I mean, one, I'm fortunate that I've been asked to do really interesting jobs when I often didn't think I was ready. But I would also say that, again, this is part of my my upbringing is the willingness to just say, okay, I'll try. Um, and that was probably most evident when I decided to take the job in Brazil. And I just want to set the stage for you because it was my first job at Sodexo. And I just, I fell in love with this company just on the public image. They, they checked every box for me, the mission, the values, um, the sense of responsibility for community. Um, but when the job came, it was to move to Brazil. It was to run sales. I'd never run sales. It was eight countries in Latin America. So I needed to start learn Spanish and Portuguese. I mean, new industry, everything. And some of my husband and I looked at each other. We had two very small children at the time. We said, let's do it. Um, and, and I just think about like, what was my, most people thought I was absolutely crazy, but what, what, what was my mindset at the time? One was this notion of, well, why not me? That, that came into play. And the, the, then the, the ability to, to embrace risk in that, okay, what's the, like the calculation for me was what's the worst thing that can happen and if I can live with that worst case scenario, then I'm going to try. So it was, I say it was calculated risk. Um, but I suppose there's also this desire to push myself and to do the things that are, that are impossibly hard. I don't know if I want to do that kind of hard again, but I, I will also say. I will it was tough. It, I'm sure it was very tough. So, so hard on so many dimensions, but I, I would have treated that Brazil experience much differently now 10 years later knowing what i know because it was it was it was so hard but it was so hard because i made it so because of the way that i internalized and my like my ability to cope and be resilient has increased as i have had hard jobs and as i've grown as a as a as an executive as a parent as a spouse as a right like i've just i'm i'm a much different more evolved more mature person now so I know that experience would have been drastically different. I wouldn't have suffered in the same way that I suffered then. Do you think people have a problem saying yes too much or too little? I think more people have a problem saying yes too little, especially if you're a woman. If you're a woman, you're, you want to make sure you can do every aspect of that job before you say yes. Um, I think that's what we can learn from our men counter, our male counterparts is willingness to take a little bit of risk, even if you don't check every box. Um, but I think it's also, it is, it is fatal to say yes too much if you don't have the maturity, because then you end up in situations where you are then way in over your head and you don't know how to, um, use the resources around you to navigate those situations. So 
again, I think humility and vulnerability is huge, huge in big roles because you're not going to have all the answers and you can't pretend you do. So my motto has always been, particularly as my career has progressed and I've been more in more and more challenging environments, my motto has been, it's not my job to have all the answers. It is my job to ask the right questions and to help those experts around me discover the answers. Like that is the role of leadership at the end of the day is to subordinate your who you are um, to those around you and to enable other people to reach their fullest potential. I always believe that. And it's I, I, I hope I've actualized that in my role. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, NetSuite. Now picture this. This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility into what's actually happening because you're relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. If you are a business owner, you need visibility into what's happening in your business. NetSuite gives you that visibility. It gives you visibility over your financials, your inventory, HR, planning, budgeting, and more. NetSuite is everything you need to have visibility, to have control, and most importantly, to grow all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your process and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased both their visibility into what was going on as well as their control after they switched and upgraded to NetSuite. Remember, NetSuite is rated the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. And over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through to the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com slash scottclary. So if you want to take advantage, head to netsuite.com slash scottclary for a special end-of-the-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. That is netsuite.com slash scottclary. I was going to say, so that seems like that has been the driving force behind many of the career decisions as well to to be a better leader and to help other people actualize themselves in, in whatever role it is. So uh, with uh, with Sodexo, um, you were in sales in Brazil. My goodness, that's a that's one hell of a move. Okay, so you were in sales in Brazil and then you moved yeah. into various, various different roles. Um, yeah. But yeah. you gravitated towards, which I'm assuming is your current role, which is Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer. Is that is that correct? That's the current... That's what you're currently doing yes. with. Okay, perfect. I, I, I wear a couple of hats. So it's it's diversity, but it's also what we call impact. I have a couple of impact functions. Um, so corporate social responsibility in North America is part of my responsibility. Um, the Stop Hunger Foundation, uh, which is Sodexo's commitment to end hunger. Um, Sodexo Magic, which is our joint venture with Magic Johnson Enterprise. It's a minority certified business. So supplier diversity. Um, so for me, it's it's the combination of those roles that I really love. I will say very honestly, I didn't gravitate to DEI. It was this was never my ambition because I've always felt like I was a DEI leader. Mm -hmm. And when I was in the business and operational roles, I actually thought that I could more powerfully um, realize our DEI ambition because you've got more levers when you're leading a business. Um, and so I will say honestly that I resisted, you know. 
I, I don't, I'm, and I'm saying it honestly, because it's not something that I say often, but, but I think it's the, it's the, it's the honesty of my journey is I didn't see myself in the role because I thought I can do it more powerfully in other ways. Um, but I did ultimately, obviously I'm in the job because I, I had the moment of reckoning, which was, I can actually do some great work here because it is so important. This work is so important, but it doesn't just live within me. D and I has to live within every leader in our, in our company. If we are, I'm an enabler of the work. Let me put it that yeah. way. I'm an enabler of the work, but it has to be actualized by every leader in our company. I think that's probably, that's an incredible, the way you said that is, is very well put. I think that the issue with just having a DE and I role is that it seems to be like a siloed role that checks the box versus that was a concern you had. That was totally the concern you had, but you have come from all of these operational roles. You've led revenue in a variety, like, which is one of the most important aspects of the business. You can speak to all the other things that people are doing in the company, even if you're not sitting in those roles with a focus on DE&I, which I think is actually very important. So I think it's because you've come from all these different worlds in business that actually probably make yeah. you more effective than just somebody who is just hired into that role and is trying to manage up, manage across, and they're running into blockers everywhere because everyone's like, listen, I have my own KPIs to focus on. Um, yeah. So this is, I think that's, I think that's probably why you're doing it well, if, you know, if I'm just, you know, thinking uh, from, from the outside looking in. Um, but I'm also curious, like, for, so, so what does your role actually entail? for people that work in companies that don't have this particular role or for people in companies that do have it but they feel like they're not doing enough what what does good look like when you actually have this person in a company so let me tell you i think good ultimately is not needing this person in a company oh. and i i do all oh, the that's time good. My, <laughs> my job is to put myself out of out of out of a job um because Good in DE&I is that it becomes so embedded and so institutionalized that it survives in the absence of people like me. And that is that is a utopia that I don't know that I'll see in my lifetime. Oh, my goodness. I wish I would. And it's what I'm working towards every single day is how does this live on its own? And, and my team will tell you, I mean, I use institutionalize, make it. I use that, those words every single day. And that, but that is what I love about what you said is that does require an understanding of the business and how things get done. Because when you think about all the levers you have to pull, I mean, it's thinking about the, the, the business ambition, the business strategic roadmap, the employee value proposition, um, the work we do in corporate social responsibility, all of those things are can enable DE&I, but you have to know how to embed them. And so that's the work that we're, that we're doing today. And that requires an army. It requires conviction at the very top from the CEO, but it also requires an army of volunteers. And I don't think you can do this work without what we call employee network groups, EBRGs, but these are the people that on top of their day job are helping DE&I, bringing DE&I to life. Um, because the beautiful thing is when you can find volunteers in the business that spend their time with these business resource groups, they are also thinking about how DNI 
moves the business because these are your salespeople, they're your marketers, they're your operators, right? And so I think there's such power. And I think a lot of organizations take that for granted in giving a lot of leverage to your employees' resource groups to bring this work to life. But I mean, but if if I leave this 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 podcast with no without if I leave this podcast, the one thing, the one message I want to convey is this work has to be deeply grounded. Mm-hmm. It has to be, it, these are, it's, it has to become systemic. Otherwise it's, it, we're chasing something that will continue to be fleeting. Do you think that you would have, and this is going to be a, I like asking questions that may not have like a right or wrong answer because it just forces people to think. So do you think you would have more success helping somebody, helping individuals at a community level feel confident enough to find sponsorship, feel entitled enough to say yes to every opportunity if they feel they can take it on? Or do you feel like a true DE&I, like moving the needle does come from people like you within corporations? Where do you find that you'd have the most impact? Because both can impact. I think it's yes and. I mean, I think it's it's both of those things. And that's what I... When I talk about DE&I, I talk about the ecosystem and that all of the pieces actually have to be working in unison to create that one plus one equals three. And so um, there's nothing about my job that I think I can do um, discreetly. I think it is a confluence of factors and that to reach that, like that amazing equilibrium, it's all these pieces, you have to get all these pieces right. Um, so I, uh, I think it's a really great question and I, I'd say it's, it's both, it's both all plus more, <laughs> um, things that we probably haven't thought of yet, but what I, what I, I, when I took this role, like my first assessment, my, my audit was what is, what are all the assets that I have at my disposal? Because we try, we talk about DE&I as something that should flow throughout the business, but that doesn't just happen. Like nothing change doesn't just happen. Transformation doesn't just happen. So intentionally, what are the assets that I have at our disposal and how do I leverage every single one of them? That's what we're doing. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Ladder. Now, over the past two years and a bit, I'm sure we've all realized that how precious and fragile life can be. And the last thing that you want to be worried about when something horrible happens is how you're going to afford it. And that's why I am a firm believer in life insurance so that if something does happen, you're not passing those costs onto your kids or your family. Now, if you're asking yourself, how do I find affordable long-term coverage? How do I find affordable monthly that can protect my family from anything that happens? Well, the answer to that question would be latter because if you wait longer, life insurance does cost more money. So when you set term coverage when you're young, you can get incredible coverage for a relatively low price. And Ladder is 100% digital. So no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for $3 million or less, you can just do it online. Need a few minutes, phone and a laptop to apply. 
Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. If you prefer to talk to somebody, they also do have a team of licensed agents. They don't work on commission, so they'll help you. They won't upsell you. There's no hidden fees. You can cancel at any time, and you can get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. And Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. They're all rated A and A plus by AM Best. So finally, Ladder is offering an option for people that want to protect their family that want to start getting behind life insurance at a younger age. So if you want to see if you're instantly approved, you can go to ladderlife.com slash success story. You'll see if you're instantly approved. That is ladder, L-A-D-D-E-R, life.com slash success story. That's ladderlife.com slash success story. And let's, okay, so we can also be very candid, like over the past, you know, two years, there's probably been the most stress in the U.S. in, in recent history just because of COVID, social justice issues. Um, do you think that we have a chance of, of moving things forward in a positive way coming out of this two-year stint because of all the lack of better term shit show that has happened? Or do you think that we're going to go back to business as usual and it seems like a lot of this stuff is swept under the rug. Yeah, I, it's a question I think about regularly because last year, last year was was an inflection point. And I kept thinking, is this an inflection point or is this a tipping point? Um, and I think it's still an inflection point uh, that we are not so changed or moved that the change is just going to happen and the change will be sustained. You know, we've also had, this is a moment, is this a movement? Um, and I actually think George Floyd's murder was such a powerful catalyst. And I don't think we have to acknowledge we're not the same. We are not the same. And because I believe in the human capacity for kindness and for empathy, um, nobody could see what happened and not feel changed in some way. Um, but We've also seen a lot this year. And how do you become, how do you ensure that people don't become sensitized? Um, desensitized, yeah. I should say, desensitized. I think that is um that is that is part of this journey is that we need to continue to feel the pain of things. But here's the other thing that I always say: change happens when a dominant group decides it has to happen. You know, it's not, you can't look to black people to solve the issue or Latin people to solve the issue. It is because the dominant group says it has to change and we're part of that change. And that requires that those in the dominant group sometimes have to subordinate their own self-interest or instincts for the collective good. And that is hard. Very, very hard. And I was actually going to ask you something. I was going to say, do you think that you, I, I actually appreciate what you said about you You sort of have faith in, in humanity and that we default to good. But I've also seen, I've also seen like this boiling point, a lot of people have been more separated than ever, more, more separated and, and almost like more having a, like a wall up than pre-George Floyd. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because we politicize the issue, right? Yeah. It's um, race has been become a rallying cry, no matter what side you're on, and that is that is sad because it is it has taken something that is for me um, about human rights and 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 the best possible societal outcomes, 
and we've made it a polarizing, um, you know, divisive issue. Mm-hmm. But here's where I have hope. And I, I'd like to think that every generation has said this, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to believe it when I look at my children. Um, because I just, I do believe that there is going to be some generational impact here and that this, the next generations coming behind us. I mean, I see it in my children. They are so enlightened. They are purpose-driven. They are convicted. Young people possess an audacity. Like they're just like, well, why not? that I've loved so much. Um, and I think they really see right from wrong in the most clear terms. I think we can all, you know, as you get older, you learn to compartmentalize, you you, you learn how to rationalize. Yeah. And I think for our kids, it's just so clear. Like there's very little gray in some of what they're seeing. And I have conversations with my children. Um, you know, one is 14, the other is 11. And sometimes they just, it's like, like, duh, mom, like, it's so obvious to them. And I just like, how can we not kill that? Because are we all like that, Scott? Like, are yeah. we all like that? Something changes. I, well, I thought, see, that's the thing. Like, well, I thought, I thought I was like that growing up. But then here, yeah. here, like, everybody thinks they're like that growing up. And then here we are in 2021. And we're still like, I didn't think, again, it's probably, it's probably uh, an entitled perspective, but I didn't think these were the issues. I didn't think these issues were as prevalent as they were, but I'm, I'm actually, I guess I'm Canadian. I didn't see as much of a political divide. That's for sure in Canada as I, as I see in the U S I didn't see these yeah. issues to that extent that I just saw in the last year when I was growing yeah. up. So yeah. I hope that, I hope that you're right. I hope, I, I really do hope. Yeah. If, 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 if we didn't believe that we would stop, like we would just say, there's nothing to fight for. So I, I feel like, yes, I choose to believe it. And maybe it's a naive perspective, but it just means that we are going to be living in this space then. And that is like, that will kill us all. Yeah. Like that is, that will, will implode. And so I think we have to believe that something's going to be different and we have to believe that our children will make it better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, so if we are going to if we're going to to move the needle on this, do you have um do you have a list of the most important things that either let's let, we could take it to an organizational level because that will probably help people that are also listening and we can also extrapolate that to a societal level um which gets gets a little bit more high level but and and, and maybe a little bit esoteric but still like we can we can do a little bit granular as well. So in an organization for example, what would be some things that could move the needle? Uh, you can pick like a, a few that maybe you've even executed on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the first thing is a repeat of what, what I've said, because I do think this is fundamental. I think organizations have to make sure that this is not a like a bolt-on, but it really is embedded. And um, because if you look at it through that lens, DEI is more than a, a program or an initiative, but really a function of who you are as an organization, it does inform the lens through which you approach trying to solve the problems. And so I, I do think that that notion of institutionalizing is so important. Um, I think the other thing is the notion of allyship, because again, you and I talked about the, the, the dominant group has to decide that this is much bigger than, than themselves and that they have to think about the collective good. And so we talk a lot about allyship and the role of white men in particular. Like we're, we're very explicit about that. And, and it's delicate because 
you know, a lot of my white colleagues get, get exasperated with this notion of white privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and because everybody's in a different place. And it's not to say that you have not suffered in your life as a white man, but it's just to acknowledge that you have a certain amount of leverage that allows you to do things and to accomplish things that people of color and women cannot as easily. And so what do you do with that power? But that is, that is also a fraught notion. And so how do we look at allyship through a different lens? And I call it, instead of talking about DE and I, I call it empathy. Um, it's, it's just learning how to care about your fellow human. And that if you can really teach that, and I'm, we're working on how do you teach that? Um, how do you teach it, about caring about humans? Is that, yeah, do we have to teach? Yeah. That's very sad. We do. That's very we sad. Do. Or, or to remember that the way you care for the people you love in your life can be extended into the workplace. Mm-hmm. That we want you to care about your employees' lived experience because if you do, it compels you to want to stand authentically and instinctively in defense of them. And there is so much power in that as well, right? You stop looking at it as a DNI issue. You look at it as, I just, I just want my fellow human partner to be okay, to be safe when they walk out the door and get in the car to go home. That, like, we actually do have to teach that because if people inherently possess that, it would solve a lot of our problems. It really would. So I think moving to a pro-human, high-empathy um corporate organization that is like if we all decide and I think COVID has forced that in some way like you couldn't get away from seeing like your 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 colleagues kids on the screen because they were in and out right you you just you got a sense for people's lives beyond work and I think that's been really good for us it's now now what do we want to do with that do we want that to to change the way that we we lead and we manage and that's what I'm arguing is it should recalibrate the way that we manage performance, the way we think about growth and talent development. Um, and I think we need to reward that as a skill set. So if you're if you're a leader who who knocks out of the ballpark from an operational perspective, but there are indicators that you're not building inclusive teams, that you do not, you're not exhibiting those empathy behaviors, that you shouldn't be promoted. I mean, how's that? You're not going to be rewarded if you're not doing the things that organizations say they value. Mm-hmm. So organizations have to say they value. Um, and then maybe the last thing that I would say, which is a little bit of, of how do we think about this outside of the workplace, just raise good children. It's, it's what we were talking about, right? Because it's like, we used to be that way. What happened? Um, but it's, it's, it's raise children to be exposed, to be kind, to be empathetic, to be allies, because then you don't have to teach it in the workplace. Because these are lessons that children are getting and are getting reinforced, but something happens. Something happens where we lose it. So how does it get reinforced every day? I love that. And, and actually I want to, so I want to actually just go back to your second point. Cause I thought that was also something very important because I want to, I want to bring up the classic argument and I want to get you to speak to that classic argument where I just hire based on, um, based on the most apt person for the job, right? And and that's how I hire and that's how I guarantee that I'm going to have a successful business unit and whatnot. And I'm sure that that is probably the most commonly used argument for yeah. why they're not, why somebody isn't focusing on, uh, yeah. you know, DE, uh, DE&I. So, so yeah. what do you say yeah. to that person? 
Yeah, it, it is an argument that I hear too much in this role. And people don't even mean to say it. But the notion is that if you start to focus on diversity, you dilute quality. And somehow this notion of meritocracy is at odds with a diverse and inclusive cult culture. And that has to be rectified. That because that that sort of that notion in and of itself conveys bias. And so I call it out. I do when when people say, but, but they have to be qualified. Questions, would you say that if you were hiring a white man? So why do we automatically go there when we start talking about hiring women and people of color? So that in and of itself is a, is a bias. But I think people who really pay attention to this, the hiring of diverse candidates, will realize that there are many talented diverse candidates. You might have to work a little harder to find them. You know, and I love I love getting the calls, you know, from recruiters. Who do you know? Because I will send them ten resumes that they may not have had access to, or they just because of their network, right? So it's what commitment are we making as well to say, how do I ensure that I just know more people? Yeah. How do I expand? How do I get out of my bubble and do the things that expand my network? Um, so I'm glad that I can I can enable some of this. But the magic is when those recruiters don't have to call me because I'm a black woman and I happen to know lots of amazing black people. Um, it's that it's already accessible and visible to them because this work becomes so mainstream. And listen, I know we're, we're far, far away. And so we take the baby steps, but it is, I mean, look at the data, look at the education rates of women versus men even, right? There's just, there is no, it's, it is that people are looking for great opportunities. I mean, they are there. How many times, do you know the statistics? I've read this in a book and it blew me away that a convicted white male is so more likely to get a job over a college educated black male. I didn't know that, but I, I get, so I do a lot of these shows and I get a lot of, um, really unfortunately surprising statistics that are probably on par with that one. That's first of all, that's insane. I've heard other statistics like I, I have to go back. Uh, I interviewed a, a, a guy, uh, Keenan Beasley, and he um, runs a, a like a, an incubator for uh, for basically um, um, uh, dis, dis, uh, unrepresented individuals uh, like it focuses on, on black entrepreneurs, but uh, a variety of other individuals. And he said something along the lines of like in history, there's only been one black entrepreneur that's raised like a million dollar seed round or some some ludicrous stat like that. That's like a standard seed round or a series A for like a Stanford grad. It, anyways, I get a lot of these really uh, horrible, yeah. sad, depressing stats. But yeah, that's nuts. Uh, but I, what does it tell us? I mean, yeah. Scott, what is it? it tells us that there is we cannot deny there's discrimination and bias in the system. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be staring these stats in the face. Yeah. That does way. speak. That does speak yeah. volumes. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. I did not know that. Yeah. So <sighs> we have work to do. We have work to do. No kidding. Um, <laughs> no, that's a really bad stat. I'm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's almost yeah. like, I don't know what to say to that. Cause it's just like, it's like that bad. I, I don't know what to say yeah. to that. But, but I could, I could quote many more statistics like that, yeah. which for me is a burning platform. And so you, the, these are the facts, but then you have, you have, um, you know, white people who 
don't want to talk about privilege and feel victimized in these conversations about race. You have people of color who are angry because they feel like they're doing everything right and the system is rigged against them. So where is the common ground other than everybody feeling like they have a role to play in making it better? Well, that's, that that, that's where everybody has to be. I mean, yeah. right now, I feel like everybody has a, a role to play in just in just almost, you know, making sure that the other person doesn't get to where they want to be or or doesn't, you know, like expand outside of what they think is is the reality right now. I feel like everybody is just like pushing each other down, which is what I don't think is the answer. That obviously, obviously not the answer. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's us versus them, you know, dichotomy, this, this way that I feel like, you know, the U.S. has evolved over the past two years. That I, That's why I was asking, like, is it getting better? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. Yeah. I think that we made strides. That way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I agree with you. If you turn on the news, it certainly doesn't feel that way. That's um, a whole other conversation all... about why I think that probably you should shut off the news and sometimes yeah. stay off social and these echo chambers <laughs> of people that just sort of yeah. validate what you're thinking all the time and make you think that whatever you say is the right thing. That's dangerous yeah. too. That's yeah. incredibly dangerous. And it's, I say it's on both sides, right? Yeah. Because I have deeply held views and I believe I'm right. And what I always have to remind myself is people who disagree with me feel like they're equally as right. Mm -hmm. And so how do you learn to listen without judgment? And that is, oh my gosh, that's so hard because, because I often just want to reject what people say, because I think, well, you, you have to be misinformed if you believe that. But if that's how you approach people, it shuts down the conversation because they people also want to be validated. They want who they are to be validated, even if you disagree with what they're saying. And that's 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 the transcendent nature of this work that we call DE&I yeah. is because if we do it well. It forces us to really look at each other as humans versus labels. Um, and that is that's the utopia, isn't it? That's the utopia. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, the new year might have you thinking ahead to what you want out of your career. So when you think about your success story, what do you actually picture? Is it retiring early with a beautiful view of the skyline? Is it leaving a legacy with your name on it? Or maybe it's helping influence and change some of the world's most pressing issues. Whatever it is, writing your success story starts by working smart. Because when you work smart, your success story writes itself. A HubSpot CRM platform helps your marketing campaigns work harder and smarter. With intuitive visual workflows and bot builders, you can create scalable automated campaigns across email, social media, web, and chat so your customers hear your messages loud and clear. Are you tired of your content not adapting to mobile, making it difficult for your customers to absorb your message? A HubSpot CRM platform optimizes your content for multiple devices so that you can reach your customers wherever they are which is just smart. Learn more about how you can transform your customer experience with a HubSpot CRM at HubSpot.com. Yeah, very good. Okay, yeah. I want to, I want to, I always ask some rapid fire to pull out some career insights from you at the end of every episode. Um, okay. Before, before we pivot, this is a very heavy conversation, but I think it was an important conversation. I appreciate, I really do appreciate um, yeah, you went too. deep on that one. That was good. Um, any anything else that you wanted to to this top of mind that uh, that you wanted to speak about that you wanted to leave listeners with? Um, yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, as we close that topic, I think um, it's important to also reinforce 
this idea of, of the ecosystem, which I touched on before. And that's just to remind us that the problems we're trying to tackle are so much bigger than any one person or institution. And so there is such importance of partnerships in this work. And, you know, it's like Republicans, Democrats working together. Imagine um, private public partnerships, employees with their bosses, it's clients and their and their vendors, it's supply chain. Like there is it's it's you got to infiltrate the entire ecosystem. And so that's just what I would I would leave us with to also convey the fact that everybody has a role. Doesn't matter where you sit, everybody has a role to play. Very good. And and also, so people can reach out to you or connect with you, website, social, where should they go? Yeah, I'm 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 notorious for connecting on LinkedIn. I respond to everybody. <laughs> good. Okay. Um, yeah. What's the is it, is it just your name? So uh, yeah, LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. All right. So a couple of rapid fire questions. Um, take as okay, long or as short as you like. They're not that scary. Don't worry. They're not. Okay. <laughs> too crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. The biggest challenge you've overcome in your personal or professional life, what was that and how did you overcome it? Um, so the experience, the, 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 the biggest experience um, was Brazil. Certainly that was a tr transformative, but the challenge that I've overcome is imposter syndrome. Um, the idea that I'm not good enough, I can't, I'm going to be found out. It can be paralyzing and I've had to be really intentional of working hard to one, ensure that it doesn't show, but really ultimately believing that I can. That is for sure. That was a game changer. And that's, I'd say that's the last year hmm. that I finally believe that I can. I mean, so I've lived over 40 years, even with everything that I've been exposed to, the education, my parents' reinforcement, believing that I was an imposter. So, and I think there are more people um, who live with it than are willing to admit. I think almost everybody at some point lives with it. Just some people hide it a little bit better than others. I think that, yeah, yeah that's a valid point. And I think that the sooner you can recognize it and speak to potentially somebody who's gone through it and achieved incredible amounts of success and sort of like help you get over that hump, I think the sooner your career, professional life, whatever it is you're trying to achieve will just massively accelerate. Because that is a huge inhibitor for people. Um, I agree. If you could choose one person in your life, obviously there's been many, but one person who's had a major impact on you, who was that and what did they teach you? Oh, my parents. That's so easy. My parents, I, I owe them everything um, because they've always reminded me who I am, where I come from, and to see those inherent qualities that I possess, what I look like to be a source of strength and not a barrier. Huge, huge. Um, if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would it be? Yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, you can. And, and, and here's another one, because I, I know this next, you know, the younger generations want everything right now. Um, but I've also learned that you will always be exactly where you're supposed to be. Good. Be still. Be still. Um, would you a uh, podcast or book that you'd recommend people go check out? Um, oh my gosh. So like 
a week ago, I would have said Brene Brown because I love everything she writes. Yeah, but she's really. everybody's already recommended her. <laughs> yeah, so but I really do. And yeah, in fact, I, I would I say I could have written her books. Um, <laughs> I I watched an amazing. It was either Hulu or Netflix on Theranos. Um, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, everyone needs to see that. The and, Bad Blood is yeah. that, or is it a different one? It, um, yeah, I think it. Uh, there were there were a couple yeah. that it could be bad. But everybody, I mean, there are lessons there for everybody. It just, wow. I mean, we we could have a whole nother session on deconstructing that, but I just, it was so powerful. And so many, like, so you can extract so much on every level. I mean, you could talk about, you could talk about race mm -hmm. and gender and youth and deceit and authenticity and like you, it, it was there, there, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it was a so crazy story. Yeah, there's something very powerful about that story and what it says about us as human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, so that's a good one. You know, I think it's actually, uh, if anybody hasn't gone down the rabbit hole of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, I would say now would be a good time because you are just catching up to when she's going to be going on trial. So, yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Um, yeah. And last question What does success mean to you? Success for me is alignment. And what I mean by that is, am I doing and living according to my values and my purpose? However that might manifest in any particular time is okay. Um, but I, I like that. I like that alignment because it also conveys a sense of choice and a sense of agency, right? Because what, what I mean by that is alignment is going to be different for everybody. And the definition of success is going to be different for everybody, but it's ultimately, it gets so personal is what, what, what does that mean? What is alignment for you? And I just, I just want to live this pure authentic life and I don't always get it right, but I know when I'm most agitated is when I don't feel like I am doing the things that are in alignment with my life's calling, whatever. And that's going to be different for everybody. So I just, um, I want to live a life and I invite your viewers to live a life that honors who they are and what they believe, but that's also linked to making society a better place. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works. One data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. 
Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. That's netsuite.com slash Clary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. 
This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 